human nature. Human nature causes so many problems in this world. There I said it. It's so very true. In, in James chapter 3, the solution seemed easy. We were given a choice. Choose worldly wisdom or choose wisdom from above. Choose the wisdom of man or choose the wisdom of God. And it seems like an easy choice, but when you're in the thick of things, in a, in a quarreling situation, which is going on in the churches that James is writing to, the people are quarreling, it's very easy to default to worldly wisdom. Somehow, jealousy and rivalry, uh, blaming others for our sin, speaking against one another, gets into us. And in such cases, pride crushes humility. Selfish ambition, which we talked about last time, crushes love and kindness. And James is continuing to teach us that it can actually get very, very ugly and it shows us a lot about our faith and has a deep impact on our faith. And so the title of our message tonight is Jesus and Our Relationships. Jesus and Our Relationships. But this is tough stuff. So to give you a little bit of hope, there's a subtitle, and the subtitle is Grace is on the Way. So Jesus and our relationship, subtitle Grace is on the Way. Conflict in life is unavoidable. You read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus was constantly in conflict with people. People were constantly in conflict with him. It doesn't have to, conflict doesn't necessarily have to be sinful from blow-ups to the silent treatment. Sometimes the conflict that people are in can even last for years. In marriages, sometimes people just barely even speak for years and years. But I really believe that some types of conflict are actually good. Why? Conflict stretches us. Conflict challenges us in many ways when it's healthy to be better. And sometimes the only way to be better is for us to tell one another how we can be better. Some battles need to be fought. There are some things that go on in this world that are just evil, and so some battles need to be fought. And again, like Jesus, godly conflict is possible. But we have to be careful of our flesh, our human nature. Sometimes in our conflict, we can be too harsh. But you know what? Sometimes we can be too soft and people don't really think that we're serious. When Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, do you think they thought he was serious? I think they thought he was serious. 
Sadly, some people, a lot of people actually, mostly because of their past, usually their very, very distant past, can't deal with conflict at all. When you meet sometimes with people in counseling situations or couples, you'll see one say, well, I didn't do this to her. I didn't do this to him. There's something from their past. And when the past is like that and there is conflict, it's, a, it's an interesting but sad dynamic. Sometimes it can mean that one person sees the conflict as minor or even potentially healthy and another person sees the same conflict as very hurtful and quite major. Now, here's something I would love to tell you. I would love to tell you, but I'd be lying. I would love to tell you that conflict ends at the door of the church. But if you've been reading, following along with us in James, it's clear in the churches he was writing to, it didn't. And it doesn't end really anywhere. There's people. And there's many reasons for it in the church. One is spiritual warfare. There's actually an enemy that, that comes into the church and Typically, he doesn't come in the front door. He's a terrorist. He likes to come in through the ceiling and through the cracks and, and through the hearts of people and, and just trying to cause division and divisiveness and, 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 and really trouble in the church. Another thing that happens in church, and this is one of the, the, the difficulties I can tell you of being a pastor, is you have the plans to do something at a certain date and time, and then there are emergencies that just come up and, and seem to foil the best of plans. I always say, my, people say, you know, I, I tell people I plan my week, and they say, does it ever go according to plan? I always go, absolutely never. Now, the mornings do a lot better than the afternoons, but it never goes according to plan because there's always something. Often, there's another thing that's very, very interesting that happens in church. You'll, you'll get people who are really kind of at loggerheads. They're, they're really against one another. And this is what one will say. Well, this is what God told me. And, and another person will say, well, God told me this. To which I will usually say, so God is confused or you're confused? Is it possible you heard wrong? Is it possible that what you think God said actually happens to 100% agree with your opinion or 100% agree with what you want. Other people, they're just impatient. They expect everything to change overnight. What's, what's really sad to me is that sometimes you'll see some people that have been given so much grace and patience. And then you'll notice, Jesus talked about a similar thing in the parable of the unforgiving servant. They've been given so much patience and grace, but they're unwilling to extend that patience and grace to other people. They're allowed to have a bad day, but no one else is. 
So sometimes people will say, well, they were really not very nice today or they were kind of grumpy today. And I go, well, is this every day or just today? Well, just today. I go, well, you ever have a bad day? Yes. Well, maybe they're just having a bad day. It happens to all of us. Now, you might say, Pastor Jim, are you trying to tell us something about our church? No, no. James is telling us, more accurately, God is telling us something about our hearts. He's telling us, really, the problem is us, and unless we see it, we will begin to, and we will continue to, dishonor God. In fact, we're going to see in a little bit that this dishonoring of God will greatly hinder our prayers, yet in His grace, this week and next week, God is going to show us there is a better way. But first... We all have to go for a spiritual x-ray. We all have to have our hearts x-rayed, and we have to see the problem. And God's going to do this for us tonight. He's going to take the spiritual x-ray, and you know how they do that? They kind of hold the, put the x-ray up on the screen with the light and the stuff like that, and he's going to go, you see right there? There's the problem. There's the problem. What are we going to do about it? So we, we jump in at verse 1. James 4, 1 says, Where, uh, some versions say, What causes or where do wars or quarrels and fights come from among you? Well, how, how does this all happen? What, what's going on here? Here's the answer. Do they not come for your from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? And we're supposed to go, yes. Now, another version doesn't say your desires for pleasures. It says your conflicting passions. We'll talk about what that means in a minute. James begins with a very simple question. I mean, if you're a parent, you've done this. If you've got multiple kids, you, you hear them fighting. Your kids ever fight? You know, whenever my grandson throws a little temper tantrum or gets angry, I always say to my daughter, my children never behave like that. <laughs> or if I see young parents and their kids are fighting, I'll go, my children never fought. And then all of a sudden I do this to the kids because it's Pinocchio. I'm not telling the truth. So I, sometimes you run to your kids and you go, what are you fighting about? And so God says saying to his children, I want to tell you what you're fighting about. I want to tell you where all the strife comes from. I want to tell you where all the tension comes from. And don't be pointing at the other person. I want to tell you the source. His answer is basically, the source is this. People's desire to get what they want. That's what causes so many problems. That's what causes the tension. That's what causes the disagreements. In other words, people in general don't like to let anything stand in the way of them getting what they want. They know what they want, and they'll do what they do to get it. 
and the result, if they don't get it, you know it. Criticism, accusations, words used as weapons, slander. Now, if this is something that you really, really struggle with, and even if you don't, (laughs) I'm going to give you a book to read that's going to really humble you. I've probably read it three times, four times, because I've taken some people through the book together, and I'm just like, every time I read it, I'm like, oh, man. And it's called War of Words by Paul Tripp. And he goes deep into, he's a counselor, and he goes deep into what your words say about your heart. So if you want some good, practical, painful reading, (laughs) War of Words by Paul Tripp. I actually, you could even email me. I think I wrote my own questions for the book. It's, it's, it's good. You see, we probably hate to admit it, and James is a difficult book in this sense, that the church fights of James Day continue. Now, they continue in a different way. Some some older churches, you hear of people just, they're going to fight till they die or Jesus returns. Other people, and this is not right either, other people, instead of trying to reconcile, they just leave. They just depart. And, and neither one of those things is right. Neither one of those, listen, God doesn't want his children fighting continuously, and God doesn't want his people running away from home. So neither one of those things is right. And people who are not followers of Jesus, it's amazing how many of them know about all this stuff because they hear it from their Christian friends. And they're like, you're going to a different church again? Or you switch churches? I thought the last time I talked to you, you love your church. You're trying to get me to come to your church. You're telling me how wonderful your church is. And, And now you left. And they often see... Christians as inconsistent. They see us as people who say one thing and do another. They see us as people who lack authenticity because our life and our lips are not matching up. James believes that such Christians, such churches, depart from the teaching of the Word of God and are following the ways of the world, following the ways of the culture. Think about it for a second. You go to a store. You go to a restaurant. You don't like the service. You're like, I am never coming back here again. People are the same way about a church. Somebody looked at them the wrong way. Somebody sat in their seat. All kinds of stuff. They don't like what what they got to do. They leave. And a lot of people get hurt when people leave because they're like, we thought they were our friend. We thought they, we thought they loved them. They loved us. The fact is that James uses the word here. Do you notice the word he uses? War. Now here's the problem with the word war. We have grown numb to it. We're so used to hearing about wars all over the place and we don't, 
We don't, we've grown numb to that word. But when James uses that word, he wants us to see how serious it is. The result is awful. I mean, here's what he says is going on. Your desires for pleasure that war in your members. In other words, there's a war that is going on within. And, this, and what does this produce? This takes us all the way back to chapter 1, verse 8, where James said, He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, I said earlier that some versions say it's conflicting passions. This is what happens to a lot of us. On the one hand, there's a desire to serve God. You, you really want to serve God, and you really want to serve his church, and you really want to serve his kingdom. But now, that desire is at war with the sinful desires of your heart. So it's like the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder. You're, you're just conflicted. And what happens when you're fighting off, I want to serve God and his kingdom and his church versus I want my own way? What happens? You become unstable. And what happens when you and I become unstable? We make stupid decisions. That's what we do. That's part of human nature. So what are the fights about here in James? We're, we're, we're not told, but it seems if we look back to chapter 3, envy and selfish ambition played a part. Bitterness, selfishness. And, and it appears that James is continuing with his thoughts from chapter 3, which if you weren't with us, I might summarize it in this sentence. That worldly wisdom in our heads and our tongues or the words that come out of our mouth are a deadly combination. Deadly combination. And what scares me in this, I was really thinking about this. I was like, man, this is not cool. He uses the word desire. Now, the word desire is often used for pleasure. So is it possible that people that are having a war of words trying to get what they want, they're evil hearts actually like it. They actually like fighting for what they want. And the results are catastrophic. We, we, we find ourselves, instead of trying to control our desires, we end up cultivating our desires. We're fertilizing them. We're helping them to grow. And not only then do we find ourselves fighting with other people, we find ourselves, we're actually fighting with God. So I want to take verses 2 and 3 here in chapter 4. I want to read them through 
and I want to come back to them. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Let's go slowly. Verse 2. You lust. Uh, some of your versions say you desire. And you do not have. So how strong is that desire? How strong is that desire? He says, you murder. Now, some people think he means literally. I'm not so convinced of that. I I think it's probably like Jesus said, if you have hatred in your heart, you you have murdered your brother. And so I think he's talking about hatred. So you murder and covet. You want what someone else has and you cannot attain the idea is that, that there's something you want so badly, but you can't get it. And it becomes an obsession to you. And the minute it's an idol to you, and the minute anybody touches or knocks down your idol, you're just going crazy. He says, you fight and you war. What's happened? Desire has overtaken your heart. Desire for what you want has overtaken your mind, your sensibilities. Let's just stop right there for a second in this verse. Here we see the effect of frustrated desire or desires. Frustrated desires breed inside of us internal strife. And that eventually, you, you know, <laughs> if you eat something bad, really bad, if you, you ever get food poisoning, it's not fun. You eat something bad and it, it comes out. And we, we have an expression we use in counseling. You know, somebody will say, well, I got mad when she said this. And, and then she goes, and then he said this and this. And I'm like, okay, let me get this straight. So, so she said this and then you vomited on her. And the, and the guy's like, what? What do you mean I vomited on her? I said, Jesus used that word. I can use that word. He used it in Revelation 3. So, so, and then what happens is when people have intense desires, what would, what's a couple of desires that could be so intense that people would bring them into the church and cause trouble? How about Recognition. That's what we're going to talk a lot about tonight. How about recognition? Maybe, maybe you felt, feel like in the working world or in any kind of endeavor, you've never been really recognized and you want to be recognized in the church. It's funny, the, the people who aren't recognized want to be recognized and the people who are recognized are like, I don't want to be recognized. Happens to me all the time. Well, not anymore because I don't really go shop anymore. But I'd be up at Target. Excuse me, Target. You know, I'd be up at Target and be online and just like, gosh, I'm waiting to check out because I'm, I, my kids try to teach me how to use those automatic checkout things. I don't know how to use them. So I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. I get online with a good intention and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to share Christ with this person. By the time I get up to there, I'm ready to kill them. I'm like, do you, serve, do you sell knives here? I mean, I'm just really, I'm off. And, and all of a sudden I hear, oh, hi, Pastor Jim. And I'm like, Rah. right? And so that, that, that's, the, that's the way it is. But, but how about, if it's not recognition, how about respect? 
You want people to respect you. And anytime anybody shows you any disrespect, oh man, you are just going to cut them down. You're just going to go right after them. And so they're, they're bringing that stuff into the church. This is a, this is a warning to us. He's saying that, that envy and selfish ambition, unchecked, can lead us, any of us, to a bad place. Now, once again, disagreements can be healthy. They can be healthy. Unity does not mean we have to have total agreement on everything. I mean, I think if you've been part of a group of people that are putting their heads together that to come up with the best solution for something, and one person says, well, what about this? And they go, oh, that's a great idea. What about that? Oh, we tried that. It didn't work. What about this? What, oh, this and that. And, people, and you come up with an idea, and then you get feedback. It's getting better, and it's getting better, and it's getting better. That's exciting. That's fun. That's great to do. But if our desires are unchecked, if we take everything that somebody says that's not what we want, they're attacking our little idol of respect and recognition. Here's something we must agree on. Remember, I just said that unity does not mean total agreement on everything, but there is one thing we must agree on. There's one exception. That for followers of Jesus, that disagreements cannot destroy the deep bond of Christian love we have for one another. That cannot be the case. And here's, I know, I know this is hard, but here's the heart of the problem with many people who claim to be Christians. It's a lack of commitment to God that manifests itself in a lack of commitment to church, to the church, and a lack of commitment to other brothers and sisters in Christ. To be tossed around by our emotions, to be unstable, to just quit something without explanation or without extending grace. And I don't mean an email. I don't mean a text. I mean loving somebody enough to say, can we sit down and can we talk about this? Because I find when most people sit down and talk about it, they actually reconcile. They, they actually come, come to an agreement. They're willing to try it again. They find out that both had some misunderstandings. Or to quit without seeking to know the facts. So those things being tossed by our emotions, quitting without extending grace, or, or dumping people or, or writing off people without seeking to know the facts. Friends, that is ungodly. That is very, very ungodly. And here's the thing. This is just an observation from years of pastoring. I found more often than not that it's the accuser the person who has been hurt that is the most un, usually the most unbiblical. Or the person who says, well, I left the church because I wasn't being fed. Usually they leave 
in a very unbiblical manner. Why? Eh, selective memory, probably. Unwilling to acknowledge their part. Unwilling to compromise. Unwilling to make sacrifices. Unwilling to just wait. But in, in Bible times, they didn't really have that. People just didn't go to the church down the street. They, they, they only would have maybe one church in a town, so they were forced to make the best of it. James is teaching us here what we think are external problems. Oh, it's the problems with those people. He's saying, no, 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 no. It's an internal problem. They're, what they are doing externally is just revealing the problem that's going on in you internally. And it's ultimately a problem between us and the Lord. So it's important to see that internal conflicts will lead to external conflicts. You're not on, right on the inside. There's going to be a lot of trouble on the outside. I mean, you see this at work. You see it at your job. There's some people who just cannot be told what to do. They don't mind. Some of them are like, I don't mind doing it. I just don't like anybody to tell me to do it. There's other people that are just, they're just lazy. And they think that certain things are below them. And then they wonder why they're always in trouble with the boss. And then we read about Jesus. He washes the apostles' feet. The boss says to you, hey, would you take out the trash? And you're like, I ain't taking out the trash. It ain't my job. Jesus is washing the apostles' feet. And listen, if you're not going to call yourself a Christian, I get it. But if we're going to call ourselves a Christians, then we are to pick up the towel. And we are to serve. Very important stuff. In the church, when envy and selfish ambition begin to rule internally, relationships are going to suffer all around. They're going to suffer all around. And this is sad. And I think that very few people will admit it unless you really kind of press into them a little. But a lot of people don't want reconciliation. I mean, I hear a lot of people talk over the years and here in other churches and, and just, you know, even meeting Christians out in the street and outreaches and stuff like that. And actually, they don't want reconciliation. They want revenge. They don't want the best for others. They want the, they want the worst for others. Perhaps now you might be thinking, well, God's got to have a solution to this problem. He always knows what to do. Well, let's look at the end of verse 2. He says, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And the idea is you didn't ask God. Now, some people would say, I object. I did ask God. Verse 3, you ask. So he says, okay, you ask. You object. I'll, I'll give you that. You ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. One version says you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend it 
on your pleasures. You're actually, the things you're asking for are going to make you have strained relationships with people and it could end up making you an enemy of God. See, <laughs> let's try to put ourselves back there 2,000 years ago. Well, this is, I guess, my job. What is it that they don't have that they, that they want so badly? Now, specifically, we're not told. But as I've been reading and rereading and reading and rereading, not just the chapter I'm teaching on, but I try to read and reread the whole letter over and over and over again, I think maybe we are told what some of them want so badly. It certainly seems to be that a lot of them want recognition. They're fighting for recognition. They want to be seen as wise leaders in the church. It's actually a very common thing. It's a very common issue. I think this is why James said in chapter 3, verse 1, not many of you should become teachers. I think, and then he goes into this thing on wisdom. Maybe he's saying, listen, God has not given you the wisdom you need for the position. So stop striving for it. Stop trying to be recognized as a leader. If you are to be a leader, God will raise you up as a leader. If you are a leader, you'll be willing to pay the price of leadership. And one is to live under constant criticism. Constant. In other words, these men or women perhaps think they should be leading the church, but... James says, if you put chapter 3 and 4 together, and really 1, chapter 1, you lack the wisdom. And one reason, 1 Timothy 3, says if you desire the office of elder, bishop, pastor, same word, you desire a good thing, a lot of people want the recognition they want the title, but they don't have a desire for the work. And if you don't have a desire for the work and you just want the recognition or the title, that's unstable. That's going to produce something in you and me not well. That's not good. So it seems to me in verse 3, James is calling them out. They'd be like, no, we pray, man. We pray, we pray. And James is saying to them, in chapter 1, I said to you, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it, and he will give it to you in abundance. He will give it to you liberally. But I think James is saying to them here that, that you lack wisdom and you're not because you're not asking for wisdom to bless the flock 
That's what you need wisdom, God's wisdom for if you're a leader. Maybe they were saying, well, God, make me a leader. Don't pray that prayer. Pray, God, give me wisdom for the flock. God, make me a pastor. Don't pray that prayer. Pray, God, help me to understand the word of God and to be able to communicate it, whether it just be in a, in, in a diner or a small group setting or, or, or you know, up here like what I'm doing. Help me to be able to communicate it in a way so people understand it. Not necessarily they agree with it. Sometimes they're going to disagree with you. Oftentimes they're going to disagree with you. But so they understand it. So James is saying, instead of praying for the blessing of wisdom for the flock, you're praying for the blessing of recognition. i got to tell you that I'm telling you this right from my heart. In a couple of months, I will have been the pastor of this church for 16 years. If you're new with us tonight, I'm the founder of this church. I have seen so many pastors not last beyond a year or two in the ministry. The tenure of a typical pastor of a church is between one and three years. The amount of, of, of pastors who, uh, who go to seminary and who are in the ministry 15, 20 years later is actually very small. I can't tell you how what I just said, people pressing so sinfully hard for recognition is the cause of so many pastors leaving the ministry. Do you know that at the end of the day, most people who leave the ministry, they'll say to you, it was, it was really five to seven people who really I just couldn't take and I had to get out of there. What about all the other people who said nothing? We wouldn't, forget about the pastor role, forget about that stuff. If you, if you, if you were 10 people, 20 people, 100, 300, 1,000, 5,000 people, and you saw five to seven people really picking on one person and making their life miserable, wouldn't you say something? And so many pastors I know, I, I meet them, and they go, oh, I used to be a pastor, what happened? Oh, the people, the man, they just, they just made my life miserable. What were they like? People with, mostly people with an unhealthy desire to be a leader or to have their agenda carried out without, without them doing anything. They have an exciting plan for somebody else's life. Explains why there's so much hurt for people in the church. Number two for that is probably people who are just ungrateful. People do so much for them and they're ungrateful and people are like, you know what? What's the point? What's the point? Here's the point. You didn't do it for them. You did it for Jesus and the glory of the kingdom. And if, even if you did it for them, if you did it for thanks, then you did it for the wrong reason. 
you may hear or see their wrath in the church, but, but this is what happens when they leave, those people, with their problems. They take as many people with them as they can when they leave. And this is the man or woman that says, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus hard, man. I'm going to follow Jesus hard. And the sad part is, is that those who follow that person out have an almost 100% faith casualty rate. And if it's not, they're out of the faith, they just start going through the motions. Sometimes it's material things. They're jealous why God blesses this person that way and not others. Why is he not blessing me? Some of the most materialistic people I know have nothing. <laughs> and, and, and they're critical of people who do. Or they, or they cozy up to people with money so they can reap some of the benefits. But as we often say, there's a big difference between having money and money having you. And a lot of people with very little money, money actually has them. But I, I found a lot of Christians that I know that have money. God seems to give them more because their hands are open. You see, if, if, if your hands are closed, we studied this when we did 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. If your hands are closed with the money God gave you, they're not open for him to put more in. If you're holding on to it, yes, I got my money, I got my money. You can't take any more in. But if your hands are open and you're saying to God, God, take this and use this as you see fit, your hands are open for him to put more in. That's just a basic thing. Sowing and reaping. Paul said, he who sows much reaps much. How big of a harvest do you want? You're not going to have a big harvest. And I don't want to sound like some goofy prosperity preacher, but you're not going to have a big harvest if you're sowing very little. And the truth is that you do have a lot of people in this country with money who put themselves out as being generous, but they're really not. Or they just think they are. And there's other people that, man, I, I'm, just, I'm just blown away. But I know that they're generous and, and they, you know, the, you see them going to the offering. I see them going, they're going to the offering box and then, I, and then I see them leaving with a bag of groceries. So they're not, they, they want to they contribute to the work of the Lord. So whether it be money or power or recognition, covetousness is among the most damaging of sins. And, and sadly, it goes something like this. A lot of people pray, God, if you just give me this, I'll be able to do more ministry. If you give me more money, if you give me a title, maybe even, and I'm, I'm looking in the mirror in this, if you give me better health, I'll be able to do more ministry. It really results in that. 
it usually results in more diversion. You can do more things that can take you away. Why? Because unfulfilled desire, unrestrained desire, is something that can never be fulfilled in your life. When you want something so much, you're just always going to want more and more and more. And it seems to me, in, as we look at this verse here, that, that few people make the connection between prayers that are not the will of God and the lack of answers to people's prayers. A lot of people don't make that connection. And you don't want, you do not want God to answer a prayer for something that's not his will. But, but true freedom is, is found in praying for unity, praying for the flourishing of the kingdom of God on earth, praying for love in your heart for God and for God's people. True joy will be found in independent praying that God's will would be done, that his priorities will be done, not ours. And, and so how, how, is, how do we move from this, this awful desire to unity? How do we make that move? We have to keep certain things out in front of us. They've got to be right in front of us all the time. And this is not going to happen if you're not reading your Bible. You, you've got to keep the grace of God out in front of you. You've got to keep the goodness of God out in front of you. You've got to keep the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ out in front of you. And let me tell you something else. I think, with all, believe with all of my heart, you have to keep the doctrine of God out in front of you. You say, what's the doctrine of God? You have to be taught the word of God. You have to know what God is like as God then conforms you into his image. So we come to verse 4. You're thinking, okay, he's going to let up now. Oh, no, 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 no. James, he's got his pedal to the metal. The pedal's to the metal. He's got his foot on the gas he continues with a sobering and jarring call to repent. Look at verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. This is why I think sometimes you hear people like, they're like, oh, you know, James is just giving us this nice letter and how to get along. This is the language of a guy who's not too happy. <laughs> he says, adulterers and adulteresses. Another version says, you adulteresses, you adulterous people, the idea is you people who are so unfaithful and so unfaithful and, un and not loyal to God, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He says, don't you know that if you're going to follow the world's ways that you are not at peace with God? Whoever therefore wants, some verses say wishes, another chooses, desires. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself or becomes an enemy of God. Man, that is, that is tough stuff, man. So he, he takes a, a very familiar Old Testament. He's a New Testament writer. 
Remember we said he, but he's, a, he's, the early, he's a, probably the earliest writer of the New Testament. He knows the teachings of his brother Jesus, and he knows the teachings of the Old Testament. And he takes the familiar Old Testament illustration of Yahweh and his spouse, of the Lord God and his spouse. Who's that? The people of God. And he's reminding us that they committed adultery with the world. And now he's saying to these people in these New Testament churches, you are committing adultery with the world. Now, were they going around going, we don't love God. We don't love God. I doubt it. But James is, I think, saying they're actually not saying they don't love God. They're just acting like they love the world more. You know, it's like sometimes you watch these shows on television and the, you know, the, one of them commits adultery. And they're like, I still really love you. I didn't mean for this to happen. I'm just like, what? What? So here we have a, we have a concept that the American church is really not talking about. I was thinking about this recently. I'm thinking, I became a Christian in the, in the late 80s, and I was thinking about all the stuff that, that the church has made the biggest issues of. You know, it was, is Jesus returning? You know, do people speak in tongues? Uh, you know, do we have to obey what God says? Or, you know, all these different you know, Calvinism and Arminianism and all this stuff. And now it's just about, how's God going to make me happy? Who knows what it's going to be in five or ten years? I'm praying for the next generation that they're walking around. Like, I'm going to meet a group of 25-year-olds that are going to walk up to me and go, uh, sir, do you know Jesus? Because you better repent. I'm, I'm really hoping for that because I, 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 miss, I miss those days. I just want to hear people saying that. And so, you know, people, they don't realize what, what God means when he says you commit adultery. You see, we don't want to admit this, I think, in the American church anymore, that God expects us, commands us to love him more than anything else. Above all else. And James' point is crystal clear. When we act in ways contrary to God and his word, that's how we declare our allegiance. So people say, I love God, you know, but then they go out and live a certain way. God says, you don't need to tell me you love me. Your life is telling me what you think of me. You say, this is harsh, but this is what God thinks of our self-centeredness and our selfishness. It's very, very serious. This is what God thinks of those that are so distracted that they don't experience his love and eventually they will become unfaithful. They've chosen friendship with the world. And friendship in the ancient world was a much more serious word than it is ours. We're like, oh, he's my friend. 
Back then, you said somebody's your friend, it means there's a commitment between that person and myself. Is the choice deliberate? Well, for some, yes, but for many, it's very subtle. Not realizing that they love the world so much that they've now become an enemy of God. See, this is an important thing to realize in your Bible reading, that when the, when the, the phrase, an adulterous generation, is used in the word of God, not of people who go, yeah, we don't care about God. Pfft, we're an adulterous generation. No, 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 no. The phrase, an adulterous generation, is used in the word of God of people who think they are in covenant with God. And God sends the prophets along and says, you're not, you're not what you think you are. So James has now moved us from our conflict with one another to the real conflict, our conflict with God himself. This is a call for us all to wake up. It was a call for them, and it's a call for us. You see, we see in the, in the New Testament letters, there's so much false teaching going around the Roman Empire, and there's so much false teaching going around in the American church right now. People are shaving the truth of the gospel. They're not telling you about sin and repentance. They're telling you about a God who's like a magic genie who'll give you what you want. Promising you things that God never said. Especially how, oh, how God's going to make you happy all the time. What's happening? The values of the world are being imported into the house of the Lord. That leads to envy and selfish ambition to, for people to get what they want instead of desiring to be holy. James, if he was here, he's a blunt guy. And I think he would say, listen, don't say you're a follower of Jesus. Don't say you love Jesus when you're so easily drawn into the world's values. Don't say you're a friend of Jesus when there's no real commitment to Jesus. Verse 5 is a, is a much debated verse because of the language. It says, or do you think that the scripture says in vain? In other words, you know, hey, there's a reason why the, the scripture says this, and, and there's no one direct verse. You could go to Exodus, but no one real direct verse on this. It's what scholars call a concise summary, sort of taking the principles of a whole bunch of different verses and putting them together. He says the Spirit, now the question is, does it mean the Holy Spirit? Some of your versions it's capitalized, some it's not. Who dwells in us yearns jealousy. Now, this is probably the toughest verse to understand, one of the tougher verses in the New Testament to translate. That's why your translations vary so much. So the question that people have is, is this the Holy Spirit living in the believer or is this the Spirit that is in all people? Is James talking positively or is he talking negatively? Is he talking about godliness or is he talking about envy and selfish ambitions? If you read a whole bunch of different translations, you'll be like, oh, 
it's tough to figure out, you know, and these are tremendously gifted linguists that translate the, the scriptures. So on the one hand, the Holy Spirit does live in the true people of God, yet on the other hand, the spirit of envy and selfishness has dominated much of human history. So what do I do when I come to these situations? Well, I let those people who are much smarter than me argue it out with themselves. And I just look at verse 5 and simply say, clearly the key word is jealousy. I'm not going to concern myself with the rest. And generally in the word of God, that is a negative word. So in this case... He could be talking about the jealousy that disrupts the church and the fellowship of the people of God. James' point seems to be is whether we know it or not, it's easy to follow the wisdom of the world. And true wisdom is in seeing the wisdom of the world. Yet for a follower of Jesus, following the world's wisdom even being hyper busy for God. You're like, oh, I'm serving God, man. Do a lot of stuff for God. You're never going to find what you're looking for. You're never going to. Until you sit at the Lord's feet and you experience Him. Why? Because God has designed you that way. Because God has designed me that way. The path to satisfaction is to pursue him and his glory. And the Old Testament is very clear. God is jealous for the devotion of his people. Why? Because he's a father. And there is a kind of jealousy that belongs in true love. That belongs in true love. God desires for his people to trust him. He, God desires for all people everywhere. If you're not a follower of Jesus, he desires people to trust him and to become his adopted children and then to come to him, to come to their father and ask for wisdom for living. Perhaps James is saying, do you think your father, do you think the Holy Spirit, do you think God wants you, his people, to live lives of jealousy? Perhaps God is saying, is the self-interest that destroys a marriage, that destroys a friendship, that destroys a church, is that what the Father wants for his children? That makes verse 5 very serious. If you're always wanting your own way, if you're always wanting to be served, that completely contradicts being a follower of Jesus and being indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Once again, I hate to pick on the American church, but is James doing something that the American church seems to be refusing to do? Is he actually getting people to question their salvation? Is he actually getting people to question, have they truly been converted by God? Many of these people have probably wandered or they actually never came to the kingdom of God. They never put, turned to God and put their trust in Jesus Christ. They need to come to God or they need to come back. Verse 6, last verse. We'll end with hope. 
I'll read it twice. But he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But he, who? Maybe the Holy Spirit. Gives more grace, therefore he, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, says, and then he quotes Proverbs 3.34, God resists the proud. In other words, God sets himself against the proud but gives grace. Some versions say gives more grace. My favorite version says gives greater grace to the humble. After hearing everything we heard in verses 1 through 5, you might be thinking, this is absolutely impossible. And you would be right. That's why God gives us the grace of change. In other words, the grace that's available is greater than. This is an important concept. The grace that is available to every follower of Jesus is greater than the demands that God puts on our lives. And some of you might, you don't like that. You're like, God doesn't put demands on our lives. You need to read your Bible more carefully. But he says the demands the grace will always be the grace to do them will always be greater than the demands they're not optional god's commands are not optional but the grace is available to to obey them this is a great promise that god is willing to give his people what we need to both resist the temptation of the world and to live out the will of god and the word of god that God himself, our Father, a good God, will gladly give us enough grace to remain loyal to him. Enough grace to satisfy his jealous love for us. You say, well, how do I get it? What must my response be? James tells us at the end of the verse, humility. And he also tells us the opposite of humility is pride. It is to be proud. And proud, being proud will actually cause God to resist us. Why? Because he wants to change us. Why does he resist us? Because we don't see our need. Because for so many of us, and I don't know that I've ever seen it worse than I've ever seen it now, for so many of us, our independence is our God. And we're blind to it. We don't even see it. So many people thinking they're better than others, undependable, yet demanding, proud, lacking humility. I mean, the choice here is, is so obvious, it's almost insulting. It's one of two choices, typical of God. You get one of two choices. He says, what do you want? Do you want me to resist you or do you want my grace? I was like, Isn't that, that's like an insulting question. But understand here that grace is not just forgiveness. It's the grace of forgiveness, of humility, of change. You say, how do I humble myself? 
I quickly want to jump to saying repent, but maybe I want to put a couple things before that. I want to ask God for the grace of wisdom and spiritual insight. And when I see where I lack, then when God shows it to me, I repent and I receive the grace of God. And when we do that, you and I will be amazed at how much God transforms us. We will be amazed at how much he changes us when we turn to him for help. And I know for some of you, maybe out there watching, you, you didn't know any of this until tonight. The only thing you know is you have been drowning. Let me tell you what happens in verse 6. Jesus just threw you a life preserver. Will you grab it? Will you trust him to pull you in? Will you trust him to forgive your sins, to cleanse you and to bring you home? As always, Jesus shows us the way, Philippians 2.8, and being found in the appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus dying on the cross in your place, in my place, for your sins, for my sins. And Lord willing, next week, he will continue with this life-changing concept and teach us about change that happens from the inside out. Not phony change, not pretend change, but lasting change. And we'll see that God wants to give all followers of Jesus gifts the gift that is truly worth having, the gift of his son and of extraordinary grace. Some of you right now might be saying, you know, James makes me feel like a failure. Well, let's just wipe that out right now. Turn to God. Put your trust in Jesus. And remember that grace is here and grace is on the way. More grace, greater grace, grace that is greater than your sin. Well, let's pray.